Our scripture reading today will come from the book of Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. You can find the scripture reading on the back of the insert in your bulletins. On the first page is the sermon outline. Then on the back is the scripture reading. And then you see there's another page in there, uh, a map of the region, a biblical map. And I encourage you to have that handy as well as you listen to God's word proclaimed today. Judges chapter 3, the verses 12 to 30. Let us pay careful attention to the public reading of God's holy and infallible and inerrant word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came up to him as if he were sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. And Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. They waited till they were embarrassed. But when, they still, when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay the Lord, their Lord, dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syria. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. That's the reading of God's Word today. Again, I invite you to keep the sermon outline and the map available to you as you listen to God's Word proclaimed today. 
Well, congregation of our Lord Jesus, in previous sermons on the book of Judges, I have pointed out why it is important that when we interpret the book of Judges, we do so from a redemptive historical perspective. And what do I mean by the words redemptive historical? For those who weren't here in some of those previous sermons, I want to take a moment to explain it again. By the word redemptive, we mean that the Bible from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation is about God redeeming His people from their sins. And by the word historical, we mean that at the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3.15, God had made a promise. God said to the serpent, I will, sure, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And God's redemptive historical plan for his people is what God has then been doing throughout the entire scriptures. The Bible is about God fulfilling his redemptive salvation plan to save his people from their sins. That is the point of scripture. It is about the offspring of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is at his first coming, coming down to earth, died on the cross to pay for the sins of his people. The offspring of the serpent then shall bruise his heel at the cross. And how someday the offspring of the woman will come to earth again, the Lord Jesus Christ, a second time and bruise, or as some translations say, crush the head of the serpent. And how every redemptive historical Old Testament event that takes place is God then vertically interceding and pointing His people to the promised salvation that is still to come. And so why do I bring up this point again as we begin to look at another passage in the book of Judges? Because if you don't interpret the book of Judges from a vertical, redemptive, historical perspective, you are then interpreting the book of Judges from a horizontal perspective. And it leaves you with a passage like this, trying to find and apply a moral truth. If you look at our text today from Judges 3, 12 to 30, what moral truth are you going to find and then apply? Is Ehud a good guy or a bad guy? Ehud seems to be a good guy. He saves Israel. But do you want to teach your children to be morally like Ehud? A liberal text critic looks at it from a horizontal perspective. And I'll tell you what they say. Ehud is not a good guy. Ehud used deception to hide his weapon. And then he lies to get close to the king and then murders him unexpectedly, sticking a double-edged sword into the fat king's belly so that the fat closes over his blade and his dung comes out. From a moralistic perspective, from a horizontal perspective, why would anybody want to teach their children to be like Ehud? And so again, that is why we are going to approach our text today from a vertical, redemptive, historical perspective. We're going to see today how the salvation of God that He brings for His Old Testament people in this passage is foreshadowing the vertical salvation that God's people, that all of God's people today have in our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. And so let's start today with point A on your outlines. Israel's repeated cycle of sin and misery. In last week's sermon, we pointed out how the text in Judges 3 that comes before this that tells us about the first judge, Othniel, shows us the repeated pattern that takes place over and over again in the book of Judges. I put that pattern on your outlines again this morning. Time after time, Israel first worships other gods. The Lord then sells them into the hand of an enemy. The people cry out to the Lord for deliverance. The Lord sends a judge. The judge delivers Israel. And then Israel again has rest in the land. This pattern takes place in the book of Judges over and over again in the lives of God's Old Testament people as they're living in the promised land of Canaan. And now, after the 40 years of rest under the time of Othniel, in the next text, the story of Ehud, that sin cycle is repeating itself all over again. Judges 3, verse 12, we read, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice the inclusio in that verse, and it shows up, and inclusio does, by way of repetition. The first part of verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the last part of verse 12, we see it repeated, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. The repetition, you see, by, is a way of emphasis. This is what the people have done. They have done evil in the sight of the Lord. The repetition, this inclusio, also highlights what's in the middle. And what's in the middle? Eglon, king of Moab, he's not more powerful than the God of Israel. That is not why he has moved into the land of Canaan. God is sovereign over all. And the reason Eglon, king of Moab, has taken possession of parts of the land of Canaan, the land of Israel... The promised land is because the people of Israel, what's repeated, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord strengthens Eglon, we're told, king of Moab against Israel. And how did Eglon do it? Verse 13, we're told, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, king Eglon of Moab, formed an alliance. These were also enemies of the children of Israel as they were in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. They had battles with the Ammonites and the Amalekites and the Moabites. If you look on your map, you will see, it shows, where the land of Moab was. The land of Moab is on the lower part of your map. You can see it there. It's a little bit dark in this black and white version, but it does say Moab there. It is outside of the promised land, the lower portion of your map, just on the other side of the Dead Sea. And the Bible tells us that the Moabites were distant relatives of the people of Israel. In Genesis 19, verses 23 to 27, we read that they were descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot, who fled the fire at Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Lot, with his two daughters with his one daughter of one of the two, had a son named Moab. 
Later in the book of Numbers, when God's people of Israel were in the wilderness on the way to the promised land, you may remember in Numbers chapter 22 and 23, Balak, the king of Moab, tries to hire the prophet Balaam to curse Israel. Instead of cursing Israel, the prophet Balaam, God would not let him do that, the prophet Balaam blessed the people of Israel. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, God commands the Israelites that since the Moabites live outside of the promised land, their land is not the land that God had given them, to not attack them, but to leave the Moabites alone because their land was outside of the promised land, as your map shows. And now God has strengthened, we're told, the Moabites. And he joins an alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they enter the land of Canaan, or they enter the land of Canaan, and they defeat Israel. And do you see what they have taken possession of? Look at the end of verse 13. They have taken possession of the city of Palms. Now, where was the city of Palms? We first read about the city of Palms in the book of Judges, in Judges 1, verse 16. And God tells us in Deuteronomy 34, verse 2, before the Israelites entered the Promised Land, that the city of Jericho was located in the Valley of Palms. And so before the Israelites conquered the city in Joshua 6, we're told it was sometimes called the city of Palms. It was a very desirable place for someone to live amongst the palm trees. And so, what does taking possession of the city of palms, the city of Jericho, mean for the people of Israel? It means that a foreign king, a Moabite king, and his alliance have taken possession of the first city of the conquest of Joshua 6, the city of Jericho. And as your map shows, and I know it's faded a bit, but if you look close, you can see where the arrows are. The city of Jericho, it's on there, but you have to look close. The city of Jericho was right at the valley, through the mountains, where the people of Israel would then follow the road up into the mountain. The city of Jericho located entrance to the valley, the road that led into the promised land. That's why the city of Jericho was so fortified in Joshua 6. They had walls of the city so large that the people built their homes in the walls and lived there. If Jericho fell, the entire land of Canaan was vulnerable to attack. They could come up the valley road and attack all the different nations. They carefully, the Canaanites did, fortified Jericho. And the Lord brought the walls down. It was a gift to the people because the land was a gift to the people. And now the king of Moab has taken possession of a strategic entry point into the promised land. And if the conquest brought Jericho into their hands and the land of Canaan into their hands, what the king of Moab is doing and what God has strengthened him to do is to reverse the conquest. And now the king's name is Eglon, which means bull or calf. But also it implies the term round. 
like a fattened calf or a bull. Why is the meaning of the king's name, Eglon, so significant? Keep listening and you will hear. And so why then, or what was the result of God strengthening Eglon, king of Moab? Verse 14, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. He had taken possession of the gateway entrance of the main road into the land of Canaan that goes back and forth to the Jordan River. Your map shows that. Think about for a moment how long that was, that he had possession of that place in the land of Canaan. Eighteen years. Today that goes back to 2004. That's a long time for Israel to be serving the king of Moab. But as you must always keep in mind, why our sovereign, gracious, and loving covenant God permitted them to be sold into the hands of the king of Moab? It was repeated in the very first verse of our text. The people of Israel had done evil in the sight of the Lord. They were worshiping other gods. And God sold His people into the hands of the king of Moab for 18 years because of their sin. They had forgotten about the Lord God. They had forgotten about the salvation He had given them. They had given themselves over to the worship of false gods. And God brought the consequences of their sin upon them. Slavery and bondage to a foreign king. And just like the Lord God does with His New Testament people today, He did not permit them to suffer the consequences of their sins to get them in trouble or to drive them away from Him. But anytime the Lord disciplines His people because of their sin, He does it because He loves them. And He makes them miserable in the consequences of their sin. So they will be drawn back unto Him and into a relationship with Him that's been graciously restored. And so, what does God do? God sends a deliverer. Point B on your outlines. God sends Ehud to kill Eglon. Verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now remember, this is part of that repeated cycle I put under point A on your outlines throughout the book of Judges. God's Old Testament people fall into sin. God has them suffer the consequences for their sin. A foreign power comes and oppresses them. And then they cry out to the Lord. This happens over and over again. But don't you see what's missing in the cry? This is not a cry out to the Lord for repentance. This is a cry out to God for help from suffering from the consequences of their sin. Time and time again, the Israelites don't want to give up their sin of worshiping other gods. Like the fertility cult of the Baals and the Ashereth described previously in chapter 3. They enjoy their sin. They don't like the consequences of being sold out to the king of Moab. And so just as a sinner today who doesn't like the consequences for their sin and then cries out to God for help and deliverance, they're crying out to God for deliverance from the consequences of their sin, but not a cry of repentance. What is a cry of repentance? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith, one of the creeds of our church, summarizes the scriptural teaching of what repentance is. What is biblical repentance? In chapter 15, verse 2, by it a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, 
but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. That's not what the children of Israel were doing. They don't hate their sin. They don't recognize the filth and the odiousness of their sin. They're not looking at it that we've sinned against the holy God and we need to repent and turn from these idols. They just don't like the consequences of their sin. That's why they're crying out. They don't like the consequences. They're crying out to God to deliver them from the king of Moab. And nevertheless, what does our gracious and loving, compassionate Lord do? In response to their call, even though they don't deserve it, the Lord God shows His people His grace through a deliverer. Verse 15b, the half second part of that verse, And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So the Lord raised up a deliverer named Ehud. And the two parts of his Hebrew name, E and Hood, when you put them together, mean, where is the splendor? Where is the splendor? You see, he is not of the tribe of Judah like the first judge Othniel was. We are told he was a Benjaminite. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the smallest tribes, but if you look at your map, you can see it was the nearest tribe and possibly, probably one of the most affected by King Eglon of Moab. Verse 15 tells us then that he was a left-handed man. Now nothing against left-handed people today, but in the Old Testament context, being left-handed was a sign of weakness. You remember throughout the Old Testament, the Bible speaks about how God delivers his people from their enemies by the strength and the power of his right hand. And in the New Testament, Jesus, who has now ascended to heaven, is sitting at the right hand of God. In the Bible, the right hand is a sign and the place of strength and honor and that you are supreme. And so what does it mean then that Ehud is a lefty? Now normally during this time period when people are being oppressed by an enemy, the king, they have to send tribute to the king. That's what the end of verse 15 tells us. The people of Israel sent tribute to him. But we don't know a lot of details in our text. But it seems the tribute was likely because King Eglon controlled Jericho, the gateway road that led through the mountains into the promised land. The people likely paid tribute for the right to pass through the territory he had conquered and he controlled as they went back and forth across the Jordan River. And it was the custom of that day for the people who were sending tribute to send a person of importance to bring the tribute to the king. Maybe one of their best and greatest warriors. Ehud 
whose name means where is the splendor, does not fit that description. He is from one of the smallest tribes of Benjamin, the smallest tribes of Israel, Benjamin. He is a left-handed man, not known to be a man of strength or considered in that day to be a person of importance. And that makes him an unexpected deliverer for God to send. An Israelite would have expected someone like Othniel, not someone like Ehud, to save them. And that's what makes him unexpected. And so having been raised up by God as their deliverer, Ehud makes his preparations in verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. It was all part of the plan. He specially crafted for the occasion a two-edged sword. Because with a two-edged sword on each side, Ehud would not need to chop so the king could see it coming. A two-edged sword, he could approach the king without a chop and do a stealth stabbing motion. And because he was a lefty, he could bind it on his right thigh instead of his left to hide the sword from detection from the king's attendants. In verse 17, we read, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, as he was asked. And then it tells us, now Eglon was a very fat man. Remember what we said about the meaning of King Eglon's name? It means a bull or a calf. It implies the term round. Like a rounded, fattened calf. The text tells us that King Eglon is a very fat man. And King Eglon is pictured here as having fattened himself up on Israel's tribute these last 18 years that's been coming to him. He's sitting in the beautiful city of the Palms with a house or whatever headquarters he's built of for the region. And Israel is bringing him tribute. And he's getting fat. In verse 18, when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. Ehud presented the tribute in verse 18, sent away the people that had helped him carry it. Deliverance, you see, is only going to come through him. In verse 19 we read, But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all of his attendants went out from his presence. Do you see where it tells us that Ehud turned back? He came in and he brought the tribute. He was dismissed with the others that had carried the tribute. But as Ehud is about to leave, he sees the idols near Gilgal. And he turns back. If you've been part of this series, listening to this sermons on the book of Judges, you know from previous sermons how significant Gilgal was in Israelite history. In both the book of Joshua and Judges, it is a significant place. You can see it on your map, but again, black and white version is very faded, but it's just sort of right next to Jericho there, just on the other side of those arrows, and it's 
written there may be a bit hard to see. Gilgal was the place where God had the Israelites after they crossed the Jordan River in the book of Joshua. And the water stood up on both sides and the people walked through on dry ground as they had under the Red Sea. After they had crossed the Jordan, they built a monument of 12 stones at Gilgal, a reminder of how God had lifted up the waters of the Jordan River and given them this land. It was at Gilgal in Joshua 5 where the post-wilderness generation was circumcised, how being brought into the promised land, they celebrated the Passover for the first time in the land in Joshua 5. It was at Gilgal where the angel of the Lord appeared to Joshua and promised to lead the people into the promised land. Gilgal was a place of religious significance for God's Old Testament people of Israel as they lived in the land of Canaan. And now when Ehud, God's deliverer, sees the Moabite idols at Gilgal, he turns back. He lets the others go on. He turns back and goes and talks with King Eglon. At the end of verse 9 we read, And he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, likely the king commanded, silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. Why would the king send out all of his attendants? It's likely because of the tribute that he had brought. The king trusted him. The attendants had searched him. He didn't have a weapon, at least on that side. And he sent all his attendants away. And verse 20, Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. You see, he's gone back into his cool roof chamber room to cool off from the heat of the city of Palms. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. First, it was a secret message he told him in verse 19 to clear the room. And now in verse 20, he tells him he has a secret message for him from God. And King Eglon stands up and arises from his seat because he wants to hear the secret message from God. And Ehud, verse 21, reaches with his left hand, takes the sword from his right thigh and thrusts it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. He doesn't recover it. And the fat closed around the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Why would they think that? Because they smelled the dung that had come out. They thought he was going to the bathroom. They didn't want to bother the king. And they waited. Verse 25 till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and they opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. That is significant. When the text tells us their Lord, our text tells us about the Lord God, the God of the Israelites, but for the Moabites who don't know the Lord, their 
Lord is the king, dead on the floor in a corpse, smelling and looking in a pile of dung. In verse 26, we're told that Ehud escaped. And while they delayed, they were waiting for him to finish using the bathroom, and he passed beyond those idols, those idols, those Moabite idols, they don't have any power to stop Ehud from killing the king, and escaped to Sirah, or Sirah. Verse 27a, then he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. If you look again at your map, you can see where the hill country of Ephraim was. On the map, you can see those arrows. You can see where Jericho is right before the mountains, the other side of the Jordan. And then up, back behind in the hills, you can see where it even says it, Ephraim. You see how the mountains are right behind there? That is the hill country of Ephraim. When Ehud escapes, he goes to the hill country of Ephraim. Verse 27b, then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country. They heard the trumpet sound. They looked at Ehud as their leader, and he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. They experienced the, the unexpected left-handed deliverer became their leader, and he called them to follow him in the Lord because the Lord had given their enemies, the Moabites, into their hands. So they went down, verse 28 tells us, after him. They seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites. And did not allow anyone to pass over. Do you see the arrows again on your map? The one arrow goes all the way to the edge of the Jordan River. When the Israelites followed Ehud and the Lord down from the hill country of Ephraim, they had the Moabites trapped. The Jordan River on one side, the men from Ephraim led by the Lord's deliverer Ehud, on the other side. And the Moabites knew where to cross. They tried to go to the fords, the best crossing area of the Jordan River because it's the most shallow and the narrowest. And the Moabites were trapped. When the Lord brought